Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, The Last Best Place or Legends of the Fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. We, we're going on a little different direction today than we usually do. Rather than talking about two books, we're going to talk to a, a musician from the Blackfeet Reservation named Joey Running Crane, and we're going to pair him up with a, a book by someone who grew up in that same part of the state. You and that to- book is The Death of Jim Loney by James Welch. James Welch, who's probably one of the most um, highly acclaimed authors out of Montana, right? Right, and um, we should probably say a word or two about why we decided to go with uh, Joseph Running Crane as a musician and yeah, uh, not a writer, just because it's come up on a few of our discussions in past episodes, like what is literature? Um, especially back in 2015 when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for literature. Right. He's a musician. So we wanted to get uh, Joseph's insights into the relationship between literature and music. Yeah. And he's, he has been a great choice because he's very uh, thoughtful and articulate about that kind of thing. Plus he's, he's a great songwriter. He's, he's a good storyteller in his own right. So. Well, Joey, tell us about your uh, what's going on with your musical career right now. Are you you, you still don't, you don't still have the band going, do you? Um, no, I, I haven't had a, a proper band for a couple of years now. I think the last time I played out with a band was October two thousand nineteen. Uh, that was with uh, Aaron Jennings on Steel and John West on Upright. Um, I think the band that you might be referring to, though, uh, the Dirty Birds. Yeah, we've been out of commission since two thousand seventeen. Um, changing life patterns and stuff and just ultimately it uh, makes more financial sense to travel light and uh, the, the yield after gas and expenses going from town to town playing is much larger if you're playing by yourself so so you do play a lot just you by yourself yeah since about 2017 um, in, 2000, in 2019 I earned a, a I was awarded um, an arts fellowship with a nonprofit based out of Rapid City called First People's Fund. Mm-hmm. And the fellowship called uh, Artists and Business Leadership. And um, I was awarded $7,500 basically to do whatever the hell I wanted to do for the entirety of 2019. So I toured a lot, uh, did a lot of stuff on the weekends, and put out a record, which was Dog Winter, which came out in 2019. Awesome. Oh. I was just going to say, God damn it, Boy Howdy is one of my favorite band names ever. That's what I said. It's a good sign that it's uh, divisive. People either love it or they hate it. I'm sure. So I'm just going to jump in with a question that 
Russell and I have kicked back and forth a lot since we really started with this podcast. And when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2015, I actually put one of his records on my syllabus at in a literature class I was teaching at the college. And I think it just gets to the heart of, you know, what literature is. And part of the reason we wanted to get you on this program as a musician is to hear your thoughts about how music relates to literature. Is it literature? Is it something else? What, what do you think about when you... I think it can be counted as literature. I mean, like just the sheer amount of effort that goes into um, not only crafting something that is poetically interesting and sound, you know, it's also, you, you have to account for, you know, rhythm and tone and, you know, meter and time and just all these other different elements. And so I think in a way, yes and no. I mean, like it could be considered literature, but at the same time, I mean, like looking at it as a, just a written piece, written document, you know, reading it like that, it leaves a lot to be desired. You know, it's a common train of thought that when it comes to, especially like with rock music, the lyrics that are in rock, they don't have to read well. Mm. It's all about how they're presented, what the stage is for, what, 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 are the, what, they're, what that uh, sentiment is being cradled by. So like the Beatles, uh, she loves you, yeah, 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 without the music is probably <laughs> no, that's not. That's my go-to every time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, on the other hand, you know, poetry is the oldest literature that we have and originally it was it was always connected to music like these poets mm -hmm. you know sang to a drum or uh, a harp or some simple instrument and part of that was just so that they could remember you know the lyrics since they didn't have writing yet um, yeah mm -hmm. what 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 are your thoughts on that i mean do you well i mean like that that ties into something you know as you know i, I started school recently after yeah. 12 years of not being in school and um, I'm taking this really great class by this. Uh, you might know him, uh, Dr. Gray morning. I don't know in, him in his class. It's an indigenous worldview and perspectives class. And he talks about these, um, these stories. I, I'm pretty sure he was referring to Arapaho stories and some of these stories, you know, they're there. They take hours to tell, but the reason why they're formatted the way they are is because listening to a story is like hearing a song. So if you have right. a song really, really love, you don't need to read it off of a page. You know what comes next. He said a good story and the way that these stories are formatted in Arapaho and like many other tribes of oral traditions, um, they're formatted in such a way that they flow and you can remember them. You understand what's coming next. I mean, like, and then the examples that you provided, like be, these, these stories being set to music, um, we never did that, but I mean, like that is like a common thorough, like thorough line that we had was um, the oral tradition, you know, in many ways, the stories that we told, whether they be creation stories or cautionary tales or what have you, oh, that that's old for us. That's a very, very ancient style of literature for us. And in many ways, they could be considered poems just within the way they're formatted within their original language and unfortunately I don't, I'm not privy to that because I don't speak Blackfeet learning but you know I don't speak it quite yet so there's complexities to it as well I think language factors into it a lot yeah and so I think in a lot of ways it might be if I do if I do dare say so a kind of a western categorical thing right where it's just mm -hmm. like this is literature 
this is music, this is poetry, yada, 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 when really they could all be one and the same or pick and choose as they go. So when the, when the Nobel Academy gave Bob Dylan the Nobel Prize for Literature, um, do you think that's a reasonable, like yeah. they were right on? Like that, yeah, this is all Why? part of literature. Yeah, yeah I, for sure. Yeah, I, I thought it was. I don't know. And I think he does a pretty good job at like discounting his own opinion and his own contributions. I recently rewatched uh, No Direction Home. Yeah. And I, he's just out to fuck with people. Like that's kind of where I've come come down on it is where it's just like he gets really bored really easy. And even when he's like has to be serious and like give an account of what something is about or you know, what his inspiration or motives were. He's just like, oh, you know, just like, I'm not a protest singer. And then like interviews later, he'll just think, all I do is protest. These are all topical songs. Just he's so inconsistent. And there's kind of a, that's like a, it's like a trickster thing, right? Ooh. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then sending Patty Smith to collect the prize for him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did so, you, uh, I didn't hear that. So do you have yeah. other songwriters that you um, think are particularly strong as far as that the like a literary quality to their lyrics yeah absolutely um john prime mm, yeah mind immediately um his, his his lyrics are just so clever and they're like clever in so many different ways where you know it starts off and you think oh this is a funny this is just a silly little ditty that he wrote and then it kind of unfolds into something a little bit more profound like he was really good at that um, uh, just with like illegal smile and how unfortunately it was co-opted by like a bunch of do nothing woke hippies and um, by being thinking that it was about marijuana about smoking grass but really you know that was that that title illegal smile came from his grandmother or his mother I want to mm. say mm. when he was a kid when he was out causing trouble she would tell him Man, boy you got an illegal smile oh wow yeah, so just like that's what that song was about. It was about mm -hmm. him, about being happiness for happiness's sake, kind of regardless of who approves of it or not. Plus, he was a storyteller. Yeah, he was an amazing storyteller. Like Sam Spade, that's a that's just a great Sam Stone. Story. Yeah, Sam Stone. Sam Stone. <laughs> You're getting too literary there with Sam Spade. <laughs> um. And then the other guy that I really like, he's a lot more contemporary, but he is very much within that vein is John Prine. Um, and if you hang out with me enough, you'll get sick of me bringing this guy up. But of course, Brandon is really good. Um, and again, just like that knack for storytelling and that kind of unconventional way of like approaching a profound concept. Like he's mm. really also really good at that. And I, I have to respect that in, in any sort of songwriter where they can, makes such a large yet logical jump between like something being using like something profane to describe something sacred or vice versa. You know, I mean like that's what John and Corey are really good at doing. Those are the folks that come to mind immediately, but. Um, so you, you mentioned the oral tradition uh, with the native culture. And one thing I've really been curious about as far as, you know, I, I think it's, um, pretty tragic and also probably pretty intentional that not a lot of native writers have been published. And, um, but I'm curious about the, 
whether part of it is because this Nate, the um, oral tradition makes it hard for them to, for native writers to um, come up with narratives that fit into the, like the traditional American publishing, um, you know, what's expected. Like it's so hard for people to wrap their head around the idea that the story can be more circular or um, just doesn't, it doesn't have to fit into a certain pattern kind of thing. You think there's something to that or am I off base? <laughs> no, no, I don't think you're off base at all. Um, in fact, you know, first going to go ahead and jump right in James Walsh here. Yeah. Uh, we're, uh, you know, that, that, that's, Recently, I, I saw this really great video by this guy named uh, Blind Boy Paxton, if you've ever heard of him. And uh, he is incredible, but also really infuriating and annoying to me because he's like an amazing songwriter, virtuoso in like five different instruments, plays really authentic blues and folk, and is really, really smart about all of it. And the reason he's so infuriating is because he's my age. Wow. So he's pretty <laughs> annoying. Um, but, uh, Anyways, and so he did this great song, and he's talking about the history of this banjo he's playing, he's talking about the history of the song that he's playing, and then he goes on to say, when this song was put to paper, I think in 1848, he said, uh, this was this was the main mode of, like, my people's, you know, he's a black guy, and so he says, this is the main mode of my people's um, uh, protest. You know, no one would print papers for us, nobody would campaign on our behalf, and so what you would do is you would go up to groups who you think would care. You'd play, you'd, you'd go up to me, you'd tell your story, and then you'd hope whoever was listening could recognize what it was and understand what was wrong with that picture. And so mm. he said that main form of protest. And I think in a lot of ways, you either have people who want to sympathize with it or don't want to sympathize with it in regards to Welsh and like the stories that he tells. And for me, it makes total sense. You know, I mean, like there are so many speaking uh, specifically winter in the blood, which I know we're not talking about today, but specifically about winter in the blood. Um, there are certain things that I picked up on just from having grown up in Brown from the same hometown that he's from, you know, mm. and there's little things that uh, I understood that may leave other people who didn't grow up in Browning a little perplexed, maybe a little confused. And um, again, learning a lot about worldview in school right now. And so that's been really at the forefront of my mind lately. And, I'm reflecting on like the past 12 years, me living in Missoula or on and off living in Missoula and how many times people just didn't get what I was saying, you know, mm. and it sends to my music as well. There's a lot of allusions to uh, very unique and specific experiences that you only get growing up in a place like Browning. So I think that may be a part of it. Um, just kind of what you're saying is like, that may be the reason why there's so many native writers who don't get published is because they are speaking about things that, uh, aren't within the common American experience. And to an extent, they are. There is a lot of overlap there, too. But also, yeah, I think that's kind of just the, the drawback of um, diverse sets of worldviews. Mm -hmm. Hey, speaking of that, can I ask you a, a question uh, about Jim Loney? Yeah. Um, because it's something I don't understand at all. Um, and maybe you know what he's talking about, where he says... Uh, He's having a conversation with his buddy. They're watching. Uh, I guess he's just come back from the football game, and he says, "How bad was it? Thirteen to twelve. There's, yes, hell, that's a moral victory. You're goddamn right. Skin you, skin you too. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I feel better about it now because I was like, 
<laughs> That's I funny. I can't think of what that means. And I've never heard uh, uh, anyone from Browning say it or any black people I, I know say it. I think it's just like a really outdated term and maybe yeah. one that was uh, particular to Browning, you know? Mm. So I don't know. So what it is? What is it about uh, Welch's writing that you that resonates with you? Uh, well, I discovered Winter of the Blood when I was about sixteen, seventeen, at my dad's recommendation. He just kind of lightly said, "Oh, you should read this book." It started out as a poem, and it's really fascinating. Kind of reminds me of a lot of the stuff you do because I wanted to be a writer mm. too when I was like younger. My dad really pushed for that, and so I read it and didn't really didn't really click with me at first pass and then I graduated high school and as soon as I could came out here to Missoula and started playing shows and got a job and started kind of uh jumping into the uh, larger live music and arts community here in Missoula I started reading it again like when I was about 20 21 years old I reread it and it made a lot more sense to me the second time around because I was it, 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 it's like a mild culture shock going off the res into a place like Missoula. And in a lot of ways, there's like no template to like understand why you're confused. You know, you mm. don't even know why you're confused. You just find yourself confused, maybe a little offended, maybe, maybe like uncomfortable or scared or anything like that. And you, there's all these feelings that you're feeling and you don't know why. And you just kind of assume it's like, Oh, I'm young. I'm 20, 21 years old. I'm still trying to figure out the world. Everyone's scared. Like I am. And then as I'm slowly approaching middle age, I'm looking back on that and I realized it was like, no, there wasn't like, people weren't experiencing what I was experiencing. They were to an extent. I mean, like we're all drinking way too much, making poor decisions and, and uh, being dumb in general. But that level of anxiety that I felt wasn't being shared amongst my white peers. I still don't understand why. So when I reread Winter and Blood, it was all of a sudden, it was just like, shit, there's someone who, and then learning more about Jim was like, shit, there's somebody out there who understands what I'm feeling, at least at one point or another. You still didn't get that, that like Rosetta Stone. You still didn't get that uh, explanation of like that brain split between like the Blackfeet side and like the, the white side. Mm. But it gave you some comfort. And in a lot of ways, it was just, um, it was seeing myself reflected in something that I respected, I guess, um, or that I found worth it. And he so also went to Missoula. Yeah, and that's the other thing too. Yeah, lived here in Missoula, and that is just a common—that's just a common thread within his work. You know, uh, disregarding like a uh, killing Custer, or to a certain extent, Fool's Crow as well. But I mean, like Jim Loney, Indian lawyer, Winter in the Blood. That it, it's just that's the common thread between most of those works is um, that old adage. And forgive me, it's a little cliche, but you know, walking between two worlds, and it's mm. that. Uh, that struggle to reconcile those two worlds. Hey, since you brought up the two worlds thing, um, maybe you could speak to this too, because I don't know anything about this either. Um, you know, he was Blackfeet, but also Gravant. Mm -hmm. So uh, historically, are, were those tribes antagonistic or allies or what? what's the relationship now? Was that uh, difficult for him also or? Well, it's like any... <laughs> Any other like tribal relation that the Blackfeet had, it was pretty complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so the uh, I want to say the Grove on, uh, we were at around 1740, 1750. 
we were getting hammered pretty badly by the Shoshone because the Shoshone had guns. And I'm pretty sure, and they were, they were pushing us northward, our traditional boundary northward. This is like just a funny little interesting side that involves the Grovan, but um, then the Grovan were pushing our, our eastern boundary because they had the horse, which is funny because like those two frontiers weren't actually aligning the way that they did. The gun, gun frontier was moving westward and the horse frontier was moving northward and it was opposite. Anyways, we were getting uh, kind of encroached upon and then as the, uh, both the horse and the gun frontier met, there was a nexus point. And the, tri- the territory that sat right on top of that nexus point was a uh, Blackfeet territory. So all of a sudden we had both the horse and the gun. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the Shoshone only had the horse or the Shoshone only had the, had the horse, I'm getting this backwards, and the, and the uh, Grovan had the gun. But no tribe in that area had both the horse and the gun. We did. And mm-hmm. so for a hundred years, we expanded our territory, which became like the predominant you know northwestern plains the the predominant supplier of buffalo of the global buffalo robe trade so that was really interesting to me in regards to like the grove on but as far as that goes i mean like throughout that like hundred year period where we realized we could just mess with anybody without without any sort of like repercussion of consequence we were realizing that we did have certain allies or we could we could have like uneasy military alliances with other tribes in the grove on typically we're more often our ally than our enemy, even though we did have like this kind of silly sense of superiority about us around that hundred year period and kind of continues to this day. But uh, yeah, I mean, like that's kind of the extent of my knowledge of the Grovan. Couldn't mention anything super specific right now, unfortunately. Oh, I, I was just thinking, um, was that, you know, you're talking about the split between two worlds. So half white or half Indian is it is it kind of the same thing if he's got allegiance to two tribes I think, or i think but i think at the same time too i mean like i got a little bit cree in me and i try and downplay that because uh the cree along with the lakota were like major sources of antagonism for black people gotcha. and that sort of like intertribal friction still continues um you'll hear it every now and again it's just like oh they're just acting cree you know and uh so I mean, like, I'm sure James being like a little grove on or like probably wasn't frowned upon as much amongst his Blackfeet peers or grove on peers, him being a little bit Blackfeet as much as it would be if it was like he was part Korea or part Lakota or something mm. or Shoshone, God forbid. And uh, but then you look at that from the other side, look at that through the other side of the lens, where it's like a white person analyzing James Walsh's character and like his ethnic makeup they'll just see blackfeet grove on being just ended right you know? right that's the way i would imagine it anyways so how is welch viewed i know a lot of people have mixed feelings a lot of natives have mixed feelings about sherman alexi um you know you either love him or hate him kind of thing is how is welch viewed on the reservation that you live on I really wish I, I think it's just kind of lukewarm honestly it feels like and I really yeah. wish people understood his contributions a little more yeah because to me he's hometown hero like he is him along with uh, Lily Gladstone you know they're like our greatest contributions to western culture it's our it's our greatest coups that we've counted you know the work that he put out the movies that Lily's doing right now you know I mean mm-hmm. like that's the most important thing we have and you know I think <laughs> I think just part and parcel of him being like required reading 
Like we had to read Killing Custer and Fool's Crow in my AP English classes in high school, and I hated it. I fucking mm, hated did books because they they forced me to read them, you know. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to I wanted to um, smoke cigarettes and play guitar. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to read. And so I think um, there is, you know, it's maybe it's like a generational distrust of the written word or something. I don't know, but I mean, like. Yeah, I just didn't really want to read at all. And uh, I think a lot of Native kids tend to um, have that opinion. Say, as cliche and stereotypical as it may sound, you know, it's like it's all basketball and running and just to an unfortunate extent, you know, uh, drugs and drinking, you know. And that breaks my heart a little bit because it's like he is such a good guidepost for navigating that um, set of challenges. And I really wish that he was taken a little more seriously around Browning, but yeah, is what it is. I think he's more. I think he's recognized more as a Missoulian, and that may be a part of it too. He never went home. Mm. Oh, he died here, be. buried here, you know. So I mean, mm. he just kind of called Missoula home after a while, and right, that, that, that's a big thing with Browning and just natives. I found in general is it's like go out there, make a name for yourself, but bring it back. Like help us here, we need help. So that may be a part of it as well. But I can't mm. be empirical about it in any way. So. So you've spent a lot of time in Missoula in the last 10 years, but um, you've also spent a lot of time in Browning too, haven't you? It seems like half the time when I talk to you, you're in Browning. Yeah. I mean, like I'm, I'm hard to, I don't like routine. I move around a lot. Again, that may be a, an ancestral thing. (laughs) (laughs) What are you studying? Studying uh, native American studies and linguistics, double majoring. Hey, while you were talking this is sort of an aside, but I'm curious, have you read the book There, There that came out a couple of years ago? I haven't, I haven't finished it yet, but yeah, I'm like halfway through it. Yeah, I started like getting sidetracked with a couple other books and then school started. And then so my uh, reading for enjoyment time has gone down quite a bit. But um, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, like... I'll be curious to hear what you think of it when you're... Yeah, I mean, like so far, it's... Uh, <laughs> I can definitely see why um, Alexi kind of looked upon, what's his name, Tommy Orange, yeah. kind of as a protege, helped him out a lot. I guess what really yeah. struck me about it was uh, it was unusual for me in that it was so urban and the, you know, the whole yeah. urban Indian, you know, Oakland, like, I don't think very many people think of Oakland as yeah, I Indian didn't. country. Well, my, my, uh, my grandfather lived there for a few years, hmm. like right after he was done in San Francisco, doing construction work and all stuff with AIM. He lived out in Oakland for a little bit. And I think that's probably a big part of why there was such a huge Indian community there is because oh, there's so right. like San Francisco for the Alcatraz occupation. Sure. And then, you know, they were there for a long time and they, none of them had jobs that can go back to their residence. I think they just said, fuck it, I'll find a job here, go across the Bay to Oakland or something. So. Right. So do you have other native writers that you admire? You know, there's just not enough of them for me to like. Yeah, really... that's, that's part of the problem, right? There's. Uh, you, I you mean, read, have you read Louise Erdrich? I like Louise Erdrich, uh, Mama Day. I like a lot. McNichol. Oh, um, those those are all really good. Yeah, and then one of the books I'm reading for class right now that is really having a really profound effect on me is um, it's a white guy who's a Canadian attorney in uh, 60s and 70s and 80s. And uh, he publishes in where he represented a lot of uh, Ojibwe Anishinaabe people as a, uh, a crown attorney, which I think is like the Canadian version of a public defender where he would um, represent 
a lot of people who were living on reserves in Canada and largely were still really clinging tight to like these old worldviews. And this whole book is called Dancing with a Ghost. His name's Rupert Ross. You know, he basically spends the entirety of the book just basically trying to translate what he saw as like undesirable behavior in like these Western style courts, what, what these um, natives would do when they were placed under, under stress. And it was just like, the, con the conflict of their worldview and his worldview and like, the, especially this worldview as expressed by um, a Western court system. It's a lot of him just trying to decipher where that miscommunication is. And he has some really great insights. He's really smart dude. Yeah. That's been a book that's been um, keeping me up at night in a good way. Uh, Deborah Magpie Yearling really like her a lot as well. Um, Perma Red was really good. Yeah. Tell us about the the song you wanna you wanna play for us. <laughs> I haven't thought about it. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, right I, think, I think I'm just gonna default to uh, Da, which is uh, the first song on my first record, and uh, definitely one of those songs where within the writing process the the spirit took over, I suppose, and the thing wrote itself in like 20 minutes, and I can't remember the last time that happened. Mm -hmm. unfortunately. But um, yeah, Is that the one know, about the dog. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that song a lot. And you know, I, I I was thinking about that when you were talking about storytellers. That's a good story, you know. It's got a, it's got a Thanks. story. And that story is just about you know, it, um, back in like two thousand, I want to say five, two thousand six. Uh, my uh, good friend of mine, uh, Robert Hall. Mm. <laughs> He um, did for his senior, his high school senior project as part of one of the requirements. Requirements. He did a uh, documentary on res dogs. Yes, there was an interview, and there was an interview that he did. Anyways, and so during his interview, just kind of it's like, what do you think about the res dogs around town? And his response was, um, was a, uh, oh well, that's their old the dogs that follow around all the street people. That's their old drinking buddies who came back to be with them. Oh, dead knowledge is like, oh man. Wow. <laughs> And I heard that and it took me like, I was like, I got to write a song about that at some mm -hmm. point. It took me about four or five years, but I finally managed to do it. I was just like bored at my parents' house one night. Nobody was home. So I just, it's like, I'm just going to write it because that's a really, really good story. And so are I you have, taking um, um, Blackfeet classes at U of M? Do they offer that? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It's uh, taught by a Bernadine Tallman, who I'm not super familiar with. I'm yeah. pretty sure she's out of Canada. So um, yeah, I'm Southern Pecani, so I don't really know a lot of my my northern relatives. All right, play us a song, man. All right, I'll tell you guys what. Um, I'll play an older song that's kind of relevant to uh, what we we're talking about, especially in regards to the Welsh. And I'll play a newer one too, and then you guys can just decide what you want to use. That's we'll use them both. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We'll use them both. Um, yeah. but... All right, so this is a song called "Imita," which is the uh, Blackfeet word for dog, and the dog and uh, the dog was a in many ways a sacred animal for us uh, first before the arrival of the horse when we were relying on dogs to both keep our camp safe and move our positions around as we traveled around the northwest plains and then as the years went on we got the horse we still kept the dog and we were different from a lot of the tribes that neighbored us because we refused to eat our dogs and um, mm. so even now you know there's uh, folks who Old dogs in pretty high regard, such to the extent that we don't pen them in. So what you'll see when you go to Browning 
uh, what some people will, will refer to as a stray dog problem. We prefer to call it a vibrant and diverse ecosystem of dogs. <laughs> There is a dog that follows me around town Keeps me company when friends and work can't be found You sure don't judge me for the shape that I'm in Don't wear a collar and he smells like the wind He defends me from weakness like no savior's done Sleep in the day and at night Well, the snow falls quiet on Browning tonight. The street lights send up red hot pillars of light. They give off no warmth like the night that you died. Your only sin was just sleeping outside, and I hope that you're walking. Good health and shoes, I hope death is to winning, is living, is to lose. This dog with no name, he eats what he finds Drink from the well and the mid-shelf sometimes He'll sit in front of me like he's waiting to play His ears will twitch slightly if I mention your name And I know it's just thinking It's probably not true But when I talk to him, it's like talking Yeah, it's been wild. It's been nice living out here. I live out in University Villages, and I'm like right at the foot of Mount Sentinel. And uh, when I first moved here, they've they've since stopped. I haven't heard in the past few nights, but uh, there's been a, there's a pack of coyotes that are roaming through. It kind of reminded me of being back home in a way because it's like <laughs> going out my parents' porch and smoking a cigarette, and there's everyone's dog just getting into trouble out there and howling and just making a, a fuss. It was nice to be able to go outside my apartment here in Missoula and just hear like that kind of scary coyote yapping and like screeching. So the weird way is kind of like being back home. So there's no dog catcher in Browning. No, there's no animal controller. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I've had some uh, girlfriends who didn't who, who don't weren't from Browning, and uh, we're really perplexed by that. <laughs> West boundary or something. There's so all of a sudden like a four or five dogs right out in front of the road and like hit the brake a little bit. She's like, where are their people? Where are their owners? And she's like, they might not have one. Like they're <laughs> they're independent. They're autonomous, sovereign. Independent contractors. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So this next one, 
I wrote it after my uh, one of my cousin's funerals back in uh, 2019. I want to say he was. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys follow this at all, but um, uh, Ashley Loring Heavy Runner has been mis- missing since 2017. She's mm. a cousin. She's a, my, my somewhat distant cousin on my dad's side. Uh, her father passed away um, in 2019, and you know it was pretty rough. I mean, like he. Um, not to divulge too much history of that family or anything like that and be disrespectful, but it was really hard just knowing that that guy didn't get the closure about his daughter. Yeah. It's, it's really unfortunate that that just happens. And so this isn't a song about him necessarily. It's not meant to describe who he was or it is meant to describe like a very typical experience, a typical way of life out on uh, in Browning. And the thing that I noticed and it was, it really struck me when we uh, brought him out to his, his grave, um it's one of the cemeteries in town and it's just filthy like like the rest of browning it's just filthy um i just remember like looking down at the ground like put my cigarette out like looking down at the ground and there's being like a a skull can lid next to like one of those plastic flowers that just nobody has the time or energy to clean up and just everywhere like plastic bags and dog shit like for christ's sake we can't even like respect our dead enough Mm -hmm. to give him a clean place to rest and so at that at that moment i was just like well this might be my my final resting spot so i'm just going to accept it now <laughs> so, so uh this is this next one's a little abstract but there's less of a story than the, the last song i played but um hopefully the gist is still clear it's called dirty graves Sunrise is just in time to break the stillness of the night While I'm keeping my shakes from the sleeping beauty by my side All in all, I can't complain about the choices that I've made Set these choices, left these voices, they've been picking at my brain When I find that peace of mind, a job that actually pays I'll be waiting for the kids on time on every holiday But nobody can miss nothing if that nothing never was Well, your sister hasn't called me, but I'll text you when she does Take me away to a dirty grave Where old skull cans and forgotten flowers lay Sing me up high, put me in the ground Leave me on the outskirts of town Get you for the grass and gas next week when I get paid. I count the days and dimes like fifths of wine, all slowly drying up. Drunken out of time, singing along to come and get your love. When the sun goes down, I circle round the shadows on the wall. Bob and weave, jab and swings like there's nothing there at all. And nobody can miss nothing if that nothing ever was. I take a swing and leave the outline of the nothing in my blood. Clean up my grave Take those flowers and throw them away Say your goodbyes, but shed no tears 
Make it so that I was never here Yeah, that's awesome. I noticed the first one is a uh, waltz. You don't hear a lot of waltzes these days. No, that's kind of a shame. It's a it's a fun dance. Hey, can you uh, can you talk a little bit about Jim Loney in particular? That book. Um, I I like the fact that he was um, that he explored somebody who was clearly struggling with with alcohol. You know, it's such a common story, but. Um, did you, what were your thoughts about that book in particular? I don't mean this to sound as like dismissive towards like uh, James Welsh, but I mean, like he's still telling the same story. Mm. And I think that was like a very important thing. And I think just like looking at his, the entirety of his fictional work as like one piece of a greater puzzle. And again, it's just kind of retreading old ideas. But I mean, like even, uh, even like the mixed parentage, that's obviously like, coming straight from Jim's life. But then also there is like, there's, like I said, he, he uh, there's certain things that I get right away that maybe not a lot of other people understand maybe certain elements. And um, just the fact that he was with a white woman, mm. you know, like that's, that's a still a big thing on the res, you know, and it ranges from like being like kind of funny to just being like, Oh, you have to, adhere to this racist system of blood quantum. So you need to marry within the tribe. Right. Yeah, right. You know, there, there's elements of alienation in that regard as well. I haven't read it in so long and I like skimmed through it last night. And uh, there's like certain things I don't remember, but I, I very clearly remember the ending and it being like one of the most beautiful endings mm. I've ever read my entire life. You know, when he gets, he gets shot and then like his last dying conscious thought was like seeing a blackbird disappear into the sky and it was just like oh god <laughs> yeah i think in a lot of ways um that like vague that vague illusion to uh perhaps not reincarnation per se but like a transference of power mm-hmm. was like a, a very like i read i reread that last night and i was like hmm, i wonder if that had anything to do with uh, Amy Dot. you know just like that that idea of coming to a violent end but also kind of that transference of spirit being continued, you know? Yeah. That's kind of my thought on that book. Like I said, I wish I had more nuanced perspective on it, but it's no, that's, that's awesome. That's really awesome. Can I ask a follow-up just specific to that book? One of the things um, that always strikes me when I read this book is the way he describes Montana and specifically Browning. I forget where it is in the book, but he says something about, and it, and it is with his girlfriend. Like she was surprised, you know, thinking about Montana's mountains, but this isn't Glacier Park. It's definitely big sky country. It's like almost overwhelming that it's so yeah, big, the sky. Does that resonate with you at all? Or do yeah, like the description does. of the place is. Well, I mean, like to me, I mean, just growing up, um, I hated it. You know, I hated how dry and yellow it would get in the summertime and just like how brutal and horrifying the winters were. And I really, um, like to this day, my, my favorite place to go when I have the option to do so is the Olympic Peninsula, like the just like lush, deep greens, you know, mm-hmm. I love being in like Northwestern uh, rainforest. 
And, and that comes in direct opposition to just like the wind, that mm. wind, you know, like uh, just being right at the gate of Mariah, the mouth of Mariah's pass, you know, that suction effect that it blasts across the prairie. And, um, you know, you go, go to somewhere like Olympia and you don't have any of that and mm. get the ocean and all that good stuff. But anyways, and so uh, I didn't really appreciate it for what it was and do it to a certain extent. I don't, I prefer other places, but um you know, Glacier in particular, I'd rather be in Glacier than in Browning. And, um, but I would, in 2016, I was with, uh, my girlfriend at the time, she was from Ohio mm. and, um, her parents came out to, uh, go visit Glacier. And I was about to go on tour for four weeks by myself. And I had a gig with my friend Drew and I wanted to see my parents for a few days before I left for four weeks. So her parents showed up they go to Glacier and they give me a ride to Browning and uh, my parents live about two or three miles North of town on this piece of land that they own. And, you know, it's like late, you know, September, but it's particularly rainy. And so the pastures were, I mean, the, the, the prairies were really, really green because they're getting watered pretty well. And it was a particularly beautiful day, not too hot, not too cold. It was, you know, end of September or beginning of September. We're driving, we're going out to my folks' place, and then we turn onto the dirt road to get out, get out to my folks' house. And my girlfriend's dad just kind of like looks around and he just goes, there's like the, the backdrop of the mountains behind these like snow-capped peaks, uh, this wide expanse of blue sky, just like these like patches of green across these like small, mild hills. And he just takes a deep breath and he just goes, this is big sky country. And I look around <laughs> yeah it's pretty good looking isn't it <laughs> like and in that moment i was just like able to like look at it from an outsider's perspective yeah yeah right like this is beautiful and it's funny in contrast like all of the all these white girlfriends that i've had they've all come from like heavily forested areas and they're just like i want to go to joshua tree i want to go to like a desert national park and i was like mm -hmm. like no <laughs> no, no i i I uh, have had the same experience, you know, growing up in Helena, I hated how dry it was. And my parents always took vacation out to Oregon and Washington. And, you know, I just love, just like you're saying, the lush greenness because it was so yeah. foreign. Um, and similar experience, you know, living in Georgia for 10 years, they all want to go to Utah or New Mexico, <laughs> hang out in the rocks and the sagebrush. <laughs> Although when I did go to Phoenix, that was pretty nice. Yeah. Watch a crown dance for the first time, and that uh, that connection, those dancers and those people to that land is like palpable. You can feel it. It's, that whole region is pretty magical in a lot of ways. Well, and the older I get, the more I realize that you know every place has its beauty and charm. And well, thanks a lot, Joe. This was great. Yeah, really. Hey, I, we really appreciate your time, and the songs were awesome. And thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Man, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. I think we should mention that, um, you know, Death of Jim Loney is not one of Welch's big books. Like, I don't think it's one that, uh, you know, is on the horizon of most literature teachers fools yeah. grow and winter in the blood are his big books but right i thought it was interesting that um joseph mentioned both this one and the indian lawyer mm. um and i hadn't thought about this but 
I'm going to have to go read those other ones and see, you know, he thinks of them all as telling the same story. Right. Yeah. That's pretty fascinating. Whereas I think, uh, especially death of Jim Loney is pretty different from the rest. Okay. What'd you think of it? I loved it. Yeah. Um, you know, this is kind of an odd comparison, but it reminded me in a way of um, Barfly. <laughs> yeah, I can totally see that. Um, um, you're, in ways, it is like a Bukowski book. Uh-huh. Yeah, so the guy's kind of hopeless, you know? And you, you wonder about this relationship with this wealthy white woman. Um, in a way, it doesn't make sense. But Let me ask you this, though. Do, um, you know, the title alone is is kind of a harbinger of a really depressing story. But this, I find this book funny. Like, there's a lot of funny parts. Oh, yeah. I laugh a lot, actually. In a, in a weird way, it's kind of an uplifting book. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think of it as, oh, you know, drunk guy spirals down until he dies. I don't think of it as depressing, oddly. So how how is that? How what is it about it that you get that doesn't take you there? I guess the humor, first of all. Yeah. And then second of all, the main character is pretty philosophical about what he's doing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that. Uh, what was that movie a few years ago? The Leaving Las Vegas movie. Oh yeah. Where the guy like purposely sets out to drink himself to death. Right. It's not like that philosophical, but just that uh, Jim Loney never seems out of control, even though he's out of control. Mm -hmm. It's like he, he never seems regretful. Is that the right word? Ah, do you get okay. that or no, I, I, I see what you mean. Yeah. That, that does make sense. Yeah. He's, he's kind of uh, resigned to his fate basically. Right. But not in the way that uh, our shield was in the surrounded. Hmm. You know, he was resigned too, but that definitely to me is a depressing, depressing. Right. And he was more resentful about it. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. It's just beautifully written too. I mean, it's a... It really is. If you forget just how poetic it is. Mm -hmm. But Alan and I were talking, Alan Jones and I were talking about Jim Welch and that, you know, people forget he was a poet. That riding the Earth Boy 40, um, Hugo and Rick DeMarinis both said that's one of the best poetry books they've. Oh, really? And even the bartender that, you know, he grew up with. And I forget how he describes the relationship, but it's like we didn't like each other, <laughs> but we hung out. Right. Yeah. And we drank right. together as two people who drink together who don't like each other do. <laughs> he yeah. just nailed it. There's, know, yeah, there's a realism there that's very refreshing. That's true. Hey, so what you uh, you use this book a lot in your in your classes? Why why do you choose this one over the other Welch books? Um, good question. You know, the other ones have never really resonated with me for whatever reason. I just they haven't affected me like I think they've affected other people. Mm -hmm. And um, for a long time, I didn't because another uh, professor in the department taught. Winter in the Blood pretty routinely. So. Oh, okay. But yeah, I, I really love this book. I, and I felt the same way you do. I, it resonated with me a lot more than, um, I think it was Winter in the Blood that I read. This might also be a factor, but I think 
it's one of those novels that's like the great Gatsby. It's short, it's mm-hmm. self-contained in a, you know, a lot of novels are sprawling kind of extensive affairs, you know, mm-hmm. they're 400, 500 pages and they involve tons of characters and lots of action or they span, you know, decades. Right. Whereas there's also a class of novels like the great Gatsby or death of Jim Maloney that are, I, I would classify it as a short novel. It's probably only mm-hmm. 70, 80,000 words. Yeah. And so if you think about Aristotle and the poetics, when he's talking about what makes a play and by extension, a great work of literature, you know, he says things like you know, unity of time, place, and action. It all has to take place in 24 hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he was exactly right, but I think there is something to be said for a, a book that, you know, is this focused. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. It is. And it's right there in the title. The name of the character is in the title. Right. And it's interesting. I was thinking about this last night when I was looking at it again, that it's not the life and death of Jim Loney. Right. And it's not the life of Jim Loney. It's no. The death. Right. <laughs> yeah, because that's exactly what it's about. Yeah, that's true. Thanks for joining us. We're going to be back next time with... Uh, something that we're not sure what yet. (laughs) Breakfast in Montana is produced by Russell Rowland. The music is written and performed by Aaron Parrott. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Susan Rostin and Medley Antonielli at Isle of Books in Bozeman, Montana and Isle of Books and Books in Butte, Montana. And also uh, Chapter One Bookstore in Hamilton, Montana. We'd also like to thank Drum Lemon Institute and the Montana Arts Council for their generous contributions. Join us again for Breakfast in Montana. <laughs>